we are in the middle of our fall sermon series on the Old Testament prophet Micah. And like most prophets, Micah shares a lot of bad news. But in the midst of gloom, we've already seen in the first few chapters, he shares these rich glimpses of glory. In chapter 4, the text we're about to read is probably the highest, the richest glimpse of glory. It's sort of a, a, a spirit-inspired daydream of the end times. Speaking of which, this week I came across an article in the New Yorker magazine, and the title of it was, Classic First Date Questions Updated for the End Times. Now, I want you to know that's pure clickbait for a pastor. Uh, went right there. And, and the context has nothing to do with Jesus coming back at the end of history. It has nothing to do with the biblical theological framework where we'll go today. Um, it, it's dry humor about the fear of an environmental apocalypse coming from the New Yorker magazine. Here, here's a sample for you. Who are your cl- first date questions? Who are your closest friends? And which ones will you eat first during the coming famine? <laughs> How long have you been single as a way to help conserve energy? What's your most embarrassing story about needing a small forest to offset your carbon footprint? What's your dream job on the new planet we'll need to colonize? And are you a morning person even after the sun ultimately burns out? The the end times are in view in this humor section of the New Yorker magazine, but really underneath those humorous thoughts of when will the end come, are concerns. What will it be like? How soon around the corner is the end? And as we know, the Bible has a lot to say about the end. In today's passage, Micah is going to look way past the end of Jerusalem when it's destroyed in 587 B.C. He's going to look way past that time when the Israelites are exiled to a foreign land called Babylon for 70 years. He's going to look way past to the end, the last day, but not with any sense of dread, not not with any sense of fear of the unknown, but with all hope. And, And ironically, interacting with the New Yorker magazine's examples about the sun burning out, ironically, the very last page of our Bible tells us that in the presence of the Lamb, Jesus, in the new heavens and the new earth, there won't be a sun. Is it because it'll burn out? We don't know. But it tells us the glory of God will give light, and that's enough. All will be made right on that day when we say and perhaps sing, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Let's read. Micah chapter 4. Listen carefully. These are God's words. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways so that we may walk in His paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide, they will beat their pl- uh, swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, 
and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame. I will assemble the exiles and those I have brought to grief. I will make the lame my remnant, those driven away, a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. As for you, watchtower of the flock, stronghold of daughter Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to daughter Zion. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, fill us with a vision inspired by the same Spirit that gave this vision to Micah. Fill us with a a vision of your coming glory. Lord, our, our hearts and our minds are so often consumed with what's going on around us, and it's not pretty. Let us see with spirit eyes what you see. Let us see your plan of salvation unfolding according to your sovereign will. It cannot be stopped. It cannot be hindered because you are the king. Enable us to place all hope in the end you will bring about glorious for us as we trust in Jesus. Amen. We have a couple of pieces of geography that'll help us start walking through this passage. And and the first we're going to call the valley and name it Ichabod. I'll explain a little bit. One of God's foundational promises in all of Scripture is found back in Genesis chapter 12. Before there was anything called Israel, God pulled Abram out of a pagan culture and made some incredible promises to Abram, starting with this, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. But the far greater promise followed. He said, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The problem in Micah's day is that centuries later, And four centuries before Micah, the people of Israel, who are Abraham's descendants, have been and have deserved more curse than blessing. How can you be a blessing to all the nations if you yourself are rotten at the core? We've said in Micah's time, he's preaching to a people who have been spiraling, spiritually speaking, down the sewer, and that last burp of water down the tub is right around the corner. How can they be a blessing to the nations? Um, A picture from our refrigerators. You know how you you go to the fridge looking forward to some fresh strawberries with Ready Whip on top, healthy dessert, right? Or or maybe with your yogurt. And you you open that container and you, you pluck off that perfect fresh strawberry. I don't know how Costco does it. They're like giant, you know, year round. Only to find that underneath there's a whole bunch of nasty because one rotten moldy strawberry got everybody else sick, right? How can Israel be a blessing to the nations when there's spiritual infection at her core that has to be dealt with? Last week, Steve covered chapter 3 of Micah, and he asked this key question. How do you wield power? And he gave us two options. 
to consider about ourselves. Do you wield power for human flourishing? Do you wield power to, to help bring about as an agent of God the way life is supposed to be, the, the way is, that is right according to God's design, the, the way of righteousness, the way of justice, or do you wield power for your own selfish gain as Micah's contemporaries have been, which he calls injustice? A couple of samples from Micah chapter 3, verse 1. He says, leaders, should you not embrace justice? That's clearly the implication that they're not. And towards the end, chapter 3, verse 9, he says, hear this, you leaders who despise justice and distort all that is right. Right? There's supposed to be a blessing to the nations, but everything is wrong with Israel. And Micah is bringing this indictment from the Lord to them. In the middle of those two verses, he says this, chapter 3, verse 8, as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might. We're going to see these themes of justice a lot more as we walk through the book of Micah. But here it's simply set up as, here's what's everything that's wrong with Israel, injustice, not righteousness, and Micah representing the Lord with justice. What's the result when God brings justice? Well, in Micah's time, the last verse of chapter 3 tells us that Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. That's what I mean by the heading over this section, Valley Ichabod. Ichabod is a name from 1 Samuel chapter 4 that means the glory has departed. If you're going to be a blessing to the nations, the glory of God needs to overflow from you. But right now in Micah's time, around 700 BC, the glory has departed. There's nothing to overflow with except infection, a whole bunch of nasty. And yet, the very next verse in chapter 4, remember, when the Bible was written, there was no chapter headings, there were, there were no chapters and verses. The, the very next thought out of the prophet's um, mind and heart that, that he writes down and speaks to the people after Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble is this picture that he uh, lays out, uh, an amazing picture of an exalted, not destroyed, glorious Jerusalem, the same place. How do we get there from Jerusalem as a heap of rubble to exalted, not destroyed, glorious city of Jerusalem? We get there, and, and he leaps. That's why I called this sort of this inspired daydream. He leaps to the very end of history, and between chapter 3, verse 12, and this picture is all of the rest of history, all of the unfolding of God's salvation plan that is still underway until from 587 B.C. until that last day, whenever Jesus comes back, which will be characterized by final and perfect and lasting justice. All wrongs on that day will be made right. All injustices will be reversed. The oppressed will be set free. The vulnerable will have perfect protection forever, but not yet there's still judgment to come. But also, in the midst of this judgment, glimpses of God's restoring grace. These are the cycles of Micah. 
For God's people in the last days, verse 1, the Lord will provide a new king, verse 8, to rule with greater glory than ever. So from valley, the glory has departed. We move second to the mountain, Jerusalem. Chapter 4 starts with this imagery, the mountain of the Lord's temple. You know, in the Bible, mountains are far more than mere geographical features of the land, high places. For example, in Exodus chapter 19, Moses goes up Mount Sinai, and he receives the, the law of the Lord. And so, the significance of Mount Sinai in the lives of the people of God for all of, of the rest of salvation history is this. The mountain is where God's rule as king is established over His people. That's the significance of Mount Sinai. Here in Micah chapter 4, especially the first two verses, we turn our focus to Mount Zion, which is another name for the city of Jerusalem. Verse 2 talks about the mountain and the temple in parallel. The temple is where God dwells among His people. Pause there for a moment and think about the temple in Jerusalem. I had the privilege of traveling to Jerusalem um, a few years back, and one of the most fascinating visits uh, in my mind was uh, to a museum where there was a small-scale model of ancient Jerusalem outside for us to walk around. And I snapped this picture. I drew a, a blue box to show you what the city of Jerusalem would have been uh, limited to in the days of David and Solomon. And so if that blue box was all of Jerusalem, which it was, you can see that massive building at the top with that face, that wall, several stories high, right in front of you. No one needed to ask, visiting Jerusalem, walking around Jerusalem, uh, excuse me, can you tell me where the temple is? Like a tourist in New York City says, can you help me get to Times Square? I have no idea which way I'm going. If you were standing in the valley outside of Jerusalem, or if you had walked into the city and you were next to all these buildings, there was no way you could possibly miss the temple because it was so um, incredibly out of proportion to the rest of the city in, in scale and in height that it's not difficult to, to understand why Micah and the other biblical writers would call the mountain the temple. If you talk about Jerusalem in terms of a, a place of worship, you're talking about the temple. You don't go to Jerusalem to worship for any other reason than to join the Israelites, the people of God, at the temple. So, uh, and, and the temple represented God's dwelling among His people. So, biblical uh, geography summarized. Mountains tell us two things. One, God's rule over His people and two, God's presence among His people, Mount Sinai, Mount Zion. But here's the problem. The very last pages of the Bible, we keep going there because that's what Mike is talking about, in the last days. The very last pages of the Bible describe the glorious new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem coming down, and there's no temple. It's missing. You wonder if it'll feel like Paris without an Eiffel Tower. You wonder if it'll, it'll be like Disney World with no castle off the monorail to greet you. you. You wonder if it'll be like a Kardashian with no selfie 
around. You know, what is missing here? What's going on? Why will the center of Israelite worship to which the nations would be drawn streaming up against nature? Streams go down. Verse 2 tells us peoples will stream up to Jerusalem. Why will the center of the worship of the one true God be missing? Because the temple represents God's presence among His people, and in the new heavens and the new earth, we will not need a representation. We won't be valuing the symbol. We will stand in the presence of Jesus and see Him face to face. Otherwise, it'd be like staring longingly at this Hallmark card written by and mailed to you by a loved one whom you haven't seen in such a long time when she is standing right in front of you, arms wide open, waiting for a hug. And you got your face buried in the Hallmark card. Nice as it is, the real thing is right there. Nice as the temple was, glorious as it was for a season, there will no longer be a need. Why? Jesus in John chapter 2 says this to the crowd, standing outside the temple. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And if we're not quite sure what Jesus means, John, the writer of the gospel, adds this, chapter 2, verse 21, the temple he had spoken of was his body. The Bible tells us very clearly Jesus is the new temple. We don't need bricks and mortar anymore. Jesus is the new temple. This is what the same John describes in Revelation chapter 21 of his vision of the heavenly city. He says, I did not see. He's looking at the new Jerusalem, glorious in every way. He says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, Jesus, are its temple. God's presence among His people. We will see Him face to face. The picture of these last days, I said, involves the nations coming, verse 2. This is the promise fulfillment of the promise God made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. I will make you into a great nation. You will be a blessing, and all nations will be blessed through you. This is what Micah foresees. The world will be saturated with the truth that perfectly reflects the heart of this God who is saving His people and giving these glimpses of glory even in the midst of doom. And God will judge, verse 3. Justice will be served. He will set things right. Jerusalem, the same place that Micah said will be plowed like a field, will become a heap of rubble. Jerusalem, that same place, will become the source of life-giving truth that will draw the nations to God in salvation. That shouldn't be a surprise to us New Testament Christians, that a place of destruction can become a place of life, that Jerusalem, heap of rubble, will become the source that will draw people to worship of the one true God. Why do I say that shouldn't be a surprise to us Christians? Because the same place of divine wrath and destruction of God the Son when He gave His life and suffered hell on the cross, that same place, the cross of Calvary outside of Jerusalem, we'll get there in a minute, is the place of greatest glory where sin and death are defeated, 
where Jesus walks out of the tomb on that third day in glorious new life. That's how we get to the shalom described in verses 3 and 4. These pictures of swords and spears, army, warrior equipment turning into farm equipment. You won't need that anymore. This picture of everyone sitting under his own vine and under their own fig tree. A picture of prosperity and peace and contentment and abundance. That's the picture of shalom that Micah gives us. What is shalom? First of all, it's, a, it's the opposite of chapter 2 we, we covered a few weeks ago, where Micah described God's people filled with covetousness and oppression and greed and violence and war and economic injustice and abuse of women and uh, corruption amongst political and religious leaders. Th th those are your 31 flavors of sin, one for every day. And shalom is the reversal of it all. Shalom is God fixing everything that is broken. Broken. In contrast to chapter 2, shalom is real peace among peoples. It's life as it's supposed to be. Harmonious relationships. Real satisfaction in God, first and foremost, as He always intended. And then satisfaction in his gifts. How will he bring about this shalom? The Lord will judge. He'll bring justice. He'll make right what is wrong. Divine justice restores and vindicates and frees. And yes, divine justice accuses and convicts and sentences. Israel will be destroyed and deported to Babylon for a couple of generations. They will taste a glimpse of shalom when they're restored to the land 70 years later, but perfect and forever shalom will only be possible when the Messiah is nailed to the cross outside of Jerusalem. That name of the city literally means foundation of peace. That's what Jerusalem means. Real shalom is only possible when the Messiah, the Son, divine and human, innocent though He is, takes upon Himself the wrath of the Father. Justice will be served in our place that we might receive everything that He's earned in the approval of the Father. That's not right, but righteousness is most clearly demonstrated when the Father pours out wrath, deals with our sin as we trust in Him, and gives us life through the Son. This is how the worldwide conversion pictured in Micah chapter 2, 4 will happen. It's a picture of Ephesians chapter 2. Claire read from a different part of chapter 2 earlier, but Paul writes this about people separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our shalom. How does this picture come about? 
Only through the bloody sacrifice of God the Son. How will God keep his promise to Abraham, though Abraham's descendants have only deserved curse and not blessing? God the Son, Jesus, will be cursed on the cross of Calvary so that we don't need to as we trust in him. Praise Jehovah, the Lord, the God of Israel. And that's how the picture of Revelation chapter 5 on the last day comes about where those from every tribe and language and people and nation will gather around the throne of the Lamb in the most multi-ethnic worship service ever that will not end. The last thought is the remnant. Thirdly, grace. Last thoughts from verse 7, Micah chapter 4. Still speaking of the last day, God says, I will make the lame my remnant. It's a key word, remnant, that shows up in the prophet's writings. And it describes those who are rescued, those who are the survivors, but do not get the wrong impression of who constitutes the remnant. It is not those who outlast and outwit and outplay, who figure things out, who, who are the sur- survival of the fittest. You know, they, they made it through the war because they're strong and, and ingenious. No, they are the remnant, the survivors, because they have received mercy by grace through faith in God. In the New Testament, the remnant in God as he's revealed himself most fully in the person of Jesus. This idea of remnant is so important to Micah because it tells us something at the core of God's character. He made promises to Abram that are hundreds and hundreds of years old. And though the descendants of Abraham have been so unfaithful and so undeserving, God will still keep those promises. That's a key thing that remnant communicates to us. God will still keep those promises. He will not discard his people, though that would be just, though he would be righteous in doing so. There is no one beyond hope of forgiveness and restoration. That's what remnant tells us and gives us hope to cling to. Micah points to this renewal. Take a look at these parallel verses in Micah 1 and 4. Same ideas, often the same language. Despite the spiral, God's plan is not to evacuate. God's plan is to renovate and recreate. That's what remnant communicates to us. He doesn't hit the reset button. He heals and renews. He, he told Noah he would never do that again, worldwide destruction. God is at work making all things new. We find that phrase at the very end of the Bible as well. In Revelation. Maybe you're in a dead end in life. Let's say it is a loveless marriage. Maybe that's your dead end. One recent Grace story honestly shared that at rock bottom, she prayed to God that God would take her husband, that he'd just not wake up one day, peacefully die in his sleep. You know, maybe there were less peaceful prayers issued, but we'll just stay right there, you know. Don't wake up in the morning. It's, it's still stark enough that a wife would pray that about her husband. How did God answer her prayer? She prayed it often, she told us. God said, I'm not hitting any reset button. 
I don't need a do-over on your husband. I am the God who brings hope out of the hopeless. I am the God who raises the dead back to life. My answer to your heartfelt plea for your loveless marriage in misery is no, I have something better for you. I have something better for you to, to taste the glorious transformation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that will make all things new. I want you to taste real shalom and lasting joy and then testify about me to all those around you so that those who are experiencing other dead ends in life, whether it's a loveless marriage or loneliness and depression or anxieties about every day, so that those also might have reason to worship me, the one true God, as I make all things new through the gospel of Jesus Christ. God doesn't start over. He doesn't hit the reset button. He doesn't need to. He hears your prayers, and he says, no, I want something better for you. The remnant communicates pure grace. This world and our lives are messy we're filled with brokenness and dysfunction and chaos. Shalom is missing in too many places. So what does the Lord say to us as we await his return? In the midst of the chaos and the brokenness and the destruction, the Lord says to us, keep on. Persevere in the hope of the end which will bring full and lasting renewal. Doesn't this picture capture that well? A glimpse of shalom in the midst of the destruction in Haiti following the earthquake. This is what my Old Testament professor, Dr. Ralph Davis, wrote. Live the life of the next age in the ruins of the present one. That, that's it. Live the life of the next age in light of the promises of God that he will keep. Remnant tells us that. He has not forgotten about it. He would be in his rights to get rid of us, to forget it and change his mind, but he doesn't. Live life, the life of the next age with hope, confidently. And yes, in the ruins of the present one. Press on toward the goal. Live faithfully. Overflow the beauty and compassion and love of the only true God who walked among us in the person of Jesus who is coming back at the end of history to finish what he began and bring about that glorious day. That's the life of faith-filled hope which empowered Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., to speak these words on April 3rd, 1968, in support of the striking sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee. I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land the last day. And I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. And then the last words that he would speak in public... Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. May you and I have such faith in a God who is returning, who will judge the earth, but has given us a path of rescue through faith in his risen Son, 
our glorious King. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your glory surpasses all others. Forgive us when we give our attention and our affections to something less, an idol. We're just as guilty as the people Mike is preaching to. Bring deep conviction by the power of your Holy Spirit. Tear down everything that is not of Christ. And by the power of your Spirit, through the truth of your Word, build us up. We pray, build my life. Build us in the likeness of the Savior. Build us in resurrection power. Build us that we might reflect something of your glory to a hopeless world all around us. We might live life, the life of the next age, in the ruins of the present one. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.